Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 26, Rethinking Cancer. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome back to Fusion Health Radio, episode 26. And hello if this is your first time here. I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Michael, how are you today? I'm all right, enjoying the snow of living in Canada in the winter. Yeah, it's a, a bit of a extreme day out there. I think if uh, I was a skier, I'd be out there instead of here. A lot of nice powder out there today. Yep. Uh, but we're in studio again talking about uh, cancer. Um, before we get into, sorry, rethinking cancer. Not cancer in the way that uh, you may already know it, dear listener. Um, Michael, give us a bit of a recap. What did we talk about last time? Uh, last podcast was called Now Would Be Good. And we just chatted about you know, the distinctions between um, perfection, procrastination, chronic I don't know, Facebook distraction syndrome, <laughs> uh, all the other things that keep us from having that direct experience of just being really present and potent and assertive and committed and because at some point each of us knows it's um, kind of like getting married to yourself. At a certain point, you're just committed to finding out where this is going to go between you and yourself. Now, I mean, when we say now would be good, that could be get a different job, get a different relationship. But it's still that, I guess, the feeling of jumping off of a diving board into a, a new pond or a pool that uh, you see as necessary and hopefully adventurous and fun and but it's the willingness to jump and leave everything else that's holding you back behind mm-hmm. just to see who's going to end up coming out of the pool. And I would say that that podcast is a timeless podcast, something that you could listen to any time of year, uh, even though we are close to the new year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be a, a good kick in the pants towards uh, 2017 for some folks to listen to that and help them make some um, uh, positive life directions for themselves uh, in the year ahead. I know I'm going to listen to it again. <laughs> Yeah, that just brings to my mind, it might be an interesting thing to do a podcast specifically on the applied meditation practices that we kind of spoke to quickly uh, as maybe a New Year's uh, specific podcast. Sure. Yeah. Resolutions with resolve. Wow. That actually sounds kind of scary from where I'm sitting, so <laughs> I'll, I'll be sure to listen, listen to that one. Yeah, I guess it can sound kind of like we're being the authoritative father with the, you know, the spanking, you know, get it together or else, but... I think that's just one of the ways we, uh, I think we grew up that way. We just naturally position ourselves, which is, you know, I'll, I'll keep sort of screwing around until the punishment gets scary enough that I'm going to move ahead. And yeah, that's not where I'm coming from at all in the sense of, you know, get your poop together or else. It's more mm-hmm. like, well, do you feel that I know fire on the inside that says, yes, I'm going to you know, make this difference in my life and just see what happens. Yeah. I think it was more of a self-loving kind of thing um, than it was a, um, you're a bad person if you don't do this kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is where most people go to when it comes to resolutions. Oh my God, I'm 10 pounds overweight. I'm such a bad person. If I don't lose this by January the 3rd, <laughs> you know, my life is over. Yeah. That sort of thing. Although in my case, I'd, I'd need to gain about 10 pounds. <laughs> Just thinking of looking at the weather outside right now. I'm like, yeah, well, we got about six months before you're going to be seen in a bikini. So we could probably spread out all that, you know urgency to be fit. Right. Uh, so uh, just uh, 
for the sake of our listeners who haven't tuned in before, uh, we usually try to give a recap of what uh, we talked about the last time to sort of bring you up to speed with all of the different uh, health uh, ideas that we talk about because uh, they are rather unique, Fusion okay. Health Radio. Uh, Michael, again, for those people who may not have heard about you before, who are you and what do you do? So I practice integrative medicine. Um, I've been doing that for over 20 years. I do that by combining the vast experience and wisdom of traditional Chinese medicine with the modern science, uh, what I've called leading-edge science of functional medicine and what people nowadays call evolutionary nutrition. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess I wanted to hear that sort of definition of you before we get into today's conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, rethinking cancer. Uh, cancer is something that is, uh, I, don't, I mean, I'm going to make this sound really small, huge. <laughs> you know, it's it's something that's, you know, so pervasive in our culture, in our society, Western society. Um, I'm not sure how else it fits into the rest of the world, but um, this was a conversation you wanted to have because your perspective on cancer is a little different than what most people might be uh, accustomed to. Uh, probably very likely that it's going to sound a bit left field just because of you know, how polarizing something like cancer can be. Uh, obviously, cancer is not good. I just think it's not uh, exactly the way we think about it, kind of down on the street, if you will. So, you know, here we are sitting with two microphones. If we were to head down onto the street and stuff these microphones into people's heavily hooded <laughs> muffle jackets today in the snow and said, what do you think cancer is? What would you? What do you think their answer would be, Anthony? Uh, cancer is a disease, a really horrible, bad disease. Um, what, what happens with cancer? Uh, it's a terminal disease. You know, it kills a lot of people. It killed, I'm sure if you put it in front of 10 people, I don't know, seven or eight of them might say that they actually know somebody who's personally been affected by cancer. At least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 you could do that with me right now and say, I know my dad told me the last time I talked to him that he says he has prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. And when I asked him what he thought of that and he says, I'm 87, <laughs> he says, I'm not happy about it, but what am I going to do? <laughs> Well, that's a pretty wise way to go about that one. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, cancer is, I think, something that uh, everybody has some kind of experience with. Uh, and uh, I don't know how else people would think about it. Well, I mean, the thing I guess that I would suggest in the rethinking you know, context of this conversation is basically people think cancer is like a ticking time bomb. And we all pray that somebody with the right chemistry or ingenuity or, I don't know, magic powers, you know, is going to somehow like the bomb squad turn it off Mm -hmm. make it go away but the overwhelming social i don't know compact you will is if you're diagnosed with cancer it's going to grow and grow and grow until you die and the treatments that are available to us uh, they're all very chemically potent if not in their own right chemically quite deadly Uh, and that's sort of the state of this war we're having with this you know process which we're right now calling a disease process and that's what we do you mm. know somebody says you got the big c we go oh well time to roll up my carpet and get ready for the the next journey or buy into you know the statistical muddy pond of chemotherapy and radiation and go with the fact that within five years you're probably about you know twice as likely if not more than that to get another kind of cancer just because you irradiated yourself or took chemo and obviously that's the sop or standing operating procedure of mainstream medicine so that's what you're gonna you're gonna find yeah when, when you say all that i mean the word uh, fight comes to mind mm-hmm. and you know i see that 
matched up with the word cancer all the time. We need to fight cancer. It's mm-hmm. a fight. Like it's a huge um, war against this thing that's uh, picking on us, for lack of a, a better word. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the rethinking part is step one. Let's just step back and look at this whole process uh, as if we've never really heard anything about it. You know, it's it's sort of, it's a new thing that happens to people. And, you know, say it's like 100 years from now, we finally come up with a completely different perspective. And say in this conversation, we were to be doing kind of a review of the weird things people did 100 years ago, including radiation and chemotherapy and stuff. You know, so it's giving ourselves permission to look at this whole thing objectively at first and just say, what actually is going on? Well, when you say rethinking it, going into the future and rethinking, I would think the same sort of, uh, experience somebody maybe a hundred years ago would have if you came up to me and said I had cancer I'd ask you what's cancer like trying to understand what it is before mm-hmm. you know putting up my dukes and saying I need to fight it yeah so there's a thing that happens in human physiology all day every day it's called apoptosis which is basically like a little timed signal within the life cycle of a cell and a certain number of days or months go by and that cell has done everything that it's supposed to do, and it's got basically the end of its rope. Uh, it goes through a process of sort of intergenetic communication, and then basically it explodes. Okay. So on average, you know, say 20, 30, 40 billion cells every day go through that process. And that happens all the time. Let's just say on average, and this this is a researchable number, on average, 30,000 cells per adult go through the apoptosis process and for a period of time become a potential cancer cell. And that happens with everybody? Yep. Huh. So that's a natural process, and we're going to get into the details of what makes something precancerous or what we would actually call malignant or cancerous, but... Uh, I just want to look at sort of the broader strokes again. If you know, there's a hundred years and we're looking back, going, yeah, we used to think about it like this. So again, we got 30 billion cells every day going off doing their thing. And as we get older, the time between the cells trying to become self-destructive normally and the period of time at which they may start to struggle with other cellular uh, opportunities again, which could become malignant. Uh, that process just takes a bit longer and longer as you get older. So if you could take a person who's, say, 50 years old on average, um, and for whatever reason they get hit by a bus or something, and we're going to scan their entire body, right? And again, during that day, 30 billion cells are going to basically become precancerous for a bit of time. Uh, as a person gets older, it becomes small sites or small groups of cells, little nodes, that are going back and forth between becoming what we actually would clinically be able to diagnose as an actual cancer, which is a clump of malignant cells that are now running with a different metabolism than they used to. Now, they're still doing something natural, Hmm. right? In the sense that, you know, we could go, oh my God, that's a disease. Or you could say, oh my God, our cells are programmed to do something that they get sluggish at as we age. But that process can happen and go away multiple times in a year, right? And that person does not actually get killed by every one of those little nodes because those nodes are a natural process that becomes more sluggish as we age. So let me get this straight. If this is already happening in our body, mm-hmm. sorry, if this, when this happens in our body, um, there's a potential for us things to turn into what we know as cancer mm-hmm. or not. Um, 
then how does that happen? Like, what is actually? I don't know if that's too big of a question. What 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 causes that? Or what what turns that sort of function on, and what turns it off? Or is that even a question that makes sense right well, now? Well, we're, we're going to get into that, I think, uh, detail by detail, because I think if I just had here and started blathering on in geek-loving terms of every little detail, it might be fascinating for some people, but I think everybody else would just feel kind of like run over by a truck, because okay. it's a lot. But So we got 50-year-old people walking around with, say, let's say on average, 50 specific sites that... Um, we're not going to get people hit by buses because I think that's sort of a creepy image. But uh, we've got now, it's 100 years from now, right? So we've got these cool little laser guns you can zap people and they're paralyzed and they have no memory. And then we can scan them with some magical machine that's going to show that they have, I would say, after 50 years old, between 30 and 50 measurable sites of changed tissue that's gone from normal cell to an apoptotic cell that got confused and basically hijacked some of its nearby friends to do this completely other biochemical process, which again is, uh, by every bit of evidence that you dig into about this, every step of it is natural, right? It's just another phase of the body going, oh crap, I mean, we don't know what to do with this. This is, there's a lot of stuff here. Let's, let's try that, you know, the thing of action movies when they crack the little plastic card to get the little code key for the next weapon that they're going to throw at the bad guys. What we call cancer is just the third stage of your immune system going, um, this, this is really hard to do right now. So I'm going to try something really, really messy. Hmm. And it's probably, uh, in messy, um, it's not malicious in its intent, is it? I would think that it's actually trying to uh, improve things by whatever it's doing, with doing doing the best that it can with whatever it has. Yeah, and that's, I guess, if I had a little sticker for top of the class, I'd stick it on your forehead or something <laughs> because, I mean, that that's really the hardest part to glean or accept or um, even allow to run through your mind with the conditioning we all have around cancer. Hmm. You know, but to be able to say, oh, yeah, well, maybe it's another innate reflex, which we'll get into exactly why that's true, that if left to its own devices in most cases, and I mean that, you know, maybe 90%, but there's no proof. In most cases, if you leave it alone and support the reason why it started, it goes away. Hmm. Now, that's a lot to say because maybe I'm selling some, you know, Dr. Mike's snake oil of, you know, modern cancer or something, but I'm not. So here, here's something to look at just as a, an actual number. And I'm going to qualify what you're going to say here. We're, we're talking about rethinking cancer, right? So yeah. um, I know I'm sitting here listening really slowly, <laughs> if that makes sense, letting, yeah. letting things sink in uh, because there's all the information or misinformation I already have about cancer or what I, you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm really hearing what you're saying about this being a, uh, a normal body function. Yeah, well, I've, I've spent the last five months in that particular place in my head going, oh my God, the conditioning around this stuff is so implicit and fear-based. And as a clinician, my job is to make people better if I can. So that's like the scariest guy to come into your office. Oh no, you got cancer. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, I'm just agreeing that over the last few months of digging into this, really looking at it, just that, that kind of blank slate, what is really going on here? Yeah, it's, it's been a slow thinking period of time to go, oh my God, I mean, I'm, it's so deeply entrenched in my brain that it's just bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, right. so here, here's a, a thing that I, when I first read it, I was like, okay, that's an interesting thing that I want to dig around a little bit. But 
it kind of comes out like this. If I was to take someone in midlife, um, and this is the most true of, say, glandular cancers, so we could have a man with prostate cancer and a woman with, say, uh, uterine cancer. And for whatever reason, they both have enough symptoms that they go to a clinic and eventually they get diagnosed with those particular conditions. And they go through the treatment process. And let's say the treatment process was successful in the sense that uh, they destroyed, irradiated, or surgically removed enough of the cancerous malignant tissue and enough of the borders around it to be confident that if they keep attacking it with chemo and radiation for a period of time after the surgery, that uh, the process that causes this malignant rapid tissue growth will just be unable to do that. And in some way that, you know, it's almost coin tosses in the air, but in some way the body will hopefully just reassert its natural immune system process regardless with to why it naturally produced one of these cancers which has now been chopped out and you know attacked with laser beams and basically mustard gas and <laughs> everything else that's a pretty barbaric approach. Well, but i mean we i mean it's almost yeah if we had longer i'd it would be fun to just go through the history of the development of these drugs Mm -hmm. You know, and to meet the people who are in chemo wards with children of one of the fastest kind of cancers that go with, which is like leukemia. And you're a doctor, you've got, you know, your, your toolbox and you've got a ward full of sick, dying babies. You're like, well, I'll try anything. Mm -hmm. And now we've gone from, we'll try anything to say babies to, well, let's keep running with this because that's all we've got. <laughs> but that, that's a bit more of a different conversation. So. We have prostate patient A, uterine cancer patient B. They both go through surgery, chemo, radiation, and whatever else. Uh, on average, um, either of them have at least a 200% chance, if not you know 500% chance, of getting another kind of cancer within five years. And the likelihood of chemo and radiation being able to resolve that second cancer is below 10%. Wow. Right. So once you've committed to that process, you're basically committed to um, either that forever or that for once, and then spending years trying to reverse why your body produced those tumors in the first place. This is where the numbers, I think, get more interesting. So if you were to take the, the fella and that lady and track a whole bunch of their friends or people they went to high school with or something, and at the end of all of their natural lives, everyone gets an autopsy. And the numbers are basically approximately for every one person who is treated through standard care with uh, surgery, chemo, radiation, and or any ratio of those things, um, at the end of life for all people within their town or whatever, 30 other people would have gotten the same kind of cancer, not been diagnosed, not have treated, and it will have resolved itself, leaving some scar tissue behind. And at the end of their life, especially with, say, prostate cancer, the coroner is like, man, this guy had cancer 25 years ago and no one even knew and no one did anything about it and he didn't die of cancer. So I think in the parlance of the internet, WTF. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. With an exclamation point at the end of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So uh, everyday people right now, right now. Um, may have cancer and they don't know about it. Yeah. It's a natural body process mm -hmm. and the body's dealing with it without them knowing about it. And they'll probably never know that they had it. Yep. And again, I'm, I'm cherry picking the, the best numbers because uh, glandular cancers are the most likely to come and go in that way. Other ones, 
um, that affect bones, that affect uh, other organs more directly, then you're going to obviously have to deal with the symptoms of that um, being more crucial. I mean, when I started, really started researching the actual uh, cause of death of cancer, there's only like maybe 10 out of 110 cancers that could actually kill you outright by themselves because it either grows in your esophagus or it grows in, grows in your brain or it grows between your liver and gallbladder or it congests your entire circulatory system to the point where you don't really have one. So there's only a few that can actually, by the me mechanical, literally mechanical pressure and location, will cease life. So did you just say that not all cancers are terminal? Uh, by their... Uh, I, th I think this is the thing about rethinking cancer is cancer is a response to something that is potentially terminal. Hmm. Our, our clinical response in the last century to that response to something potentially terminal is even more terminal. Okay. Because after you've been treated through standard care for cancer, you're more likely to get another kind of cancer and you're less likely to be able to solve that naturally or with modern means. The idea comes to mind that we're fighting more cancer now because we're smarter about being able to actually find it. Yeah, and that, that's the thing that's driving, I think, most people in any part of that. And I mean, we, have, we call it the cancer industry now, which makes you want to throw up in a bucket and then poke myself in the face with a fork, but... Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till the after the holidays and make some joke about why I have fork marks in my head. <laughs> but it's, 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 uh, okay, again, the name of the podcast, Rethinking Cancer. That's crazy making. Yeah, I know. That's, that's absolutely insane that um, we're smart enough to know that something is a healthy process and um, we're treating it with, you know, flamethrowers and grenades and, you know, everything we can to sort of annihilate something mm -hmm. like that. And that that process, the, I'm doing the air quotes here, mm -hmm. um, the healthy thing to do is the thing that's actually killing people. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's Western medicine, I guess. Well, we've been kind of lovingly calling them the pharmaceutical people because, I mean, that's their kind of go-to thing. I mean, the old joke is if you're talking to a hammer, it's always going to be about a nail. <laughs> you know, so if we're talking to the, the people who've gone through all of that training, and I, 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 I know a lot of people in standard medicine. In fact, my mom's a doctor, and the inculcation they go through naturally in the sense of, you should feel confident because we're the best ever. You should feel covered by your lawyer because statistically we're doing the right thing. If you fill out your paperwork and you don't make mistakes, at least you're never going to go to jail or kill anybody on purpose. You know, and I'm not putting it down, but I'm just saying there's an inculcation for people who go through that process where you're just given this belief that, I mean, you're, you're next to God. I mean, you've got the most powerful tools in, in the entire, you know, toolbox of the planet to solve these, you know, mysteries, huge problems that you could be a specialist in any part of the human body, spend your entire career learning about it and still have more to learn. So for anyone to say, oh yeah, I understand the human body. Oh yeah, I can take care of anything. Uh, that's the scary part. Hmm. And then the belief that we're on the leading edge or we've been doing this for 40 years and because we don't have a better option, we're going to still call it the leading edge. Right. And, and I mean, I, I admit it's the same thing if you go to become a naturopathic doctor, even a Chinese doctor, you get squeezed through the inculcation of what we're doing is in a way better or unique or special or you know, wonderful in some way. Um, so I'm not picking on any specific kind of medicine. I'm just saying we've gotten into a place, 
specifically with cancer, where the impatience, the crisis mindset, and the arrogance of people who just want to be in control of the whole thing, it's, it's probably up there with anything else as the worst medical mistake we've ever made, statistically. Wow, that's a lot to take in. <clears throat> yeah, and, and here's the big number. I mean, if I went back a couple hundred years, it'd be one in 2,000 people would live long enough and have enough food and get into enough trouble enough times in a row to develop cancer, <laughs> right? And I'm not calling cancer as a disease, but this weird thing the immune system does when it's really, really stuck. Hmm. Or sick or malnourished and things like that. Um, so that's one in 2,000 people. Right now, 2016, tick, 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 2017, one in two men, one in three women will do have to deal with some kind of cancer within their lifetime at least once. That's cancer that's been medically diagnosed? Yep. Wow. Uh, it, so getting back to the idea of what we're talking about here, if we're rethinking cancer, if one in two men, um, I'm sure there's two men listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> One or two men doing this podcast right now. So. <laughs> Who are doing rock, paper, scissors. Rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> you can't see it. Um, so um, how do I, what do I do with that information? So uh, if it's something that's uh, bound to happen, um, uh, where do you want to go next with how we're rethinking it? Uh, basically by looking at what it actually does. Like what what's going down? You know, so if we, again, we were down on the street with some microphones, we'd say, what's cancer? And people are going to say, oh, it's this horrible thing. Once it starts, it's going to basically grow and kill you unless you've got the right drugs and that probably kill you too. So, uh, so if we're going to get into what's actually going on, as I mentioned, you can take a cell and if a cell lives long enough, does enough metabolic driving that it's responsible for, um, it's kind of like going to spool down to the end of, I think like an old movie reel or something like that. And I feel so old talking about these things, but you know, it just gets down to that little thing where it would be flipping, you know, okay. That we've done everything we can with this roll of film. So again, those cells are meant to go through a process called apoptosis where a certain gene within our entire genome says, you know what, we've had enough fun with what we've done here. Let's, let's blow up this one and start with something fresh, perfectly normal process. So for something to become malignant, which I didn't even know what it meant after 20 years of practice until I really dug into it and went, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. But we'll come in to that in a bit. So in order to become malignant, one, it has to be, it has to fail at apoptosis, right? Now there may be a reason why that isn't actually a fail, hmm. right? It may be that it's turn on, turning on a secondary or what would probably be more of a tertiary, uh, not so much survival mechanism because the cell is supposed to die, but, uh, you know, a last ditch overnight kind of night shift, you know, extra shift of work to do. So when you have a cell that can't do its processes properly because it's supposed to have self-destructed, you're going to see more and more congestion around that cell. And this is sort of a chicken or the egg thing because you could say uh, the cell is creating more waste because it didn't effectively, you know, blow itself up. Or it effectively couldn't blow itself up because of the congestion of lymph and blood and other stuff around it. So that that's two of things that have to happen. You have to fail at apoptosis, and there has to be enough tissue congestion simultaneously, or you know, chicken or the egg, uh, to effectively drive that cell into an even further in-depth, evolutionarily driven response, right? So one thing that starts to happen, um, failure of apoptosis, lots of congestion in the area, 
uh, one of the genes that is partially responsible for the self-destruct sequence turns on a completely different uh, process, which we're going to call an oncogene, you know, oncology, onco, cancer. <clears throat> sure. And if you even typed in on Wikipedia oncogene, it would say, oh, yeah, the gene that causes us cancer. Because, <laughs> you know, it's we're, we're impatient sometimes when we, how we think about things. So this gene turns on, we call it the oncogene, because it's really the precipice between being a cell that runs on oxygen and nutrients to something that can run on waste and a lack of oxygen or become anaerobic. So we have genes that can basically make us live in, I don't know, outer space or underwater or a place without air, right? Not, not our whole body, but just that part of our body. Now, I've, I've, as I dug into this over the last few months, I really had to sit and ask myself, you know, that this, this is the threshold between, you know, is this something that's instinctually actually a good idea in the long term? Again, assuming that, you know, 30 out of 31 people is going to go through one of these processes and not get sick at all, at least sick enough. Uh, if this is in fact an instinctual process, what is it really designed to do? Right? So if we're going to go into the um, kind of four stages of what makes cancer happen, again, one, it fails at apoptosis, two, it lives in a swamp, which we'll play with some metaphors in a bit, three, the oncogene has to turn on and turn the cell from an aerobic cell or from, well, that's a really tricky thing to say out loud that way, from a anaerobic cell <laughs> to an anaerobic cell, right? Cells, cells need air or cells can't use air anymore. So at the point at which they can't use air anymore, um, another really weird thing happens, and I'd have to go back into the research to, to explain it exactly the way I saw it, but uh, the earlier cellular, cellular anatomists, people with microscopes were trying to figure out what every little thing they could see was, and this goes back to the original... Uh, researchers from quite a long time ago, that there's these little tiny nodules, like we're talking super tiny nodules inside of cellular membranes that don't seem to have any job at all. That's what they discovered. Yeah. Up until more and more uh, opportunities to study cancer as a process, it turns out that tiny little nodule is what's called an oncovirus spore. Okay. So it's this little, little virus guy. He sits there in his little tiny bubble for, you know, ever, or until conditions change in such a way that the virus has a job, which is to eat up broken down proteins and tissue waste. Cool. So for whatever reason, you've got this little sleeping ninja hiding in, if we were to use this room as the metaphor for a cell, in that cupboard. And if for whatever reason, you and I get really bad with our bachelor lives and leave, I don't know, beer and pieces everywhere around the room that virus is going to pop out of the closet and clean up the mess because that's why it's there. And what's really unique about this virus is it only eats fractured, denatured, dead protein elements, especially from DNA. So I think I'm already ahead of you on this. Let me see if I understand it. So if there's that congestion that you talked about, the swamp, and there's a maid in the room. <laughs> <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, or butler or whatever it is that can actually deal with that and clean it up is that actually what happens when people who unknown to them have cancer and get no cancer um, is, that, is that little ninja thing in the corner the uh, thing that actually saves the day i think that would be in most cases the guy who's actually saving it from becoming too prolific or septic 
and that's its job. But if you type in Oncovirus to Wikipedia or whatever is your, or, you know, WebMD or something like that, it's more than twice as likely that the person talking about it is going to say, oh, that's that's the, the virus that causes cancer. Right beside the gene that causes cancer. Yeah, because we can see it in the activity of a cancerous cell, right? So, Or a malignant cell, which is now a cell running on a completely unique and disparate metabolism from the rest of the body. Do I understand you right that you're saying that the Western medicine believes the oncogene and oncovirus are in cahoots? There are people who are convinced that the gene causes cancer and kills people. <laughs> we have to fight it. Or it's the virus causing cancer and killing people, so we have to fight it. Okay. Right. And here, here's where things like, you know, having excess protein in your diet might be considered a bad idea because you're feeding this virus that wants to become a prolif, something that's going to proliferate cancer. And that's actually not true. Hmm. It's the maid or the butler or the cleaning ninja or whatever <laughs> that's just there to gobble up all of this tissue waste to keep your body from becoming septic enough to die. So although it's, you know, we can look at that process, uh, I don't know, as its own little jerk in the school yard of life or something like that. Um, but if you zoom out a little bit and look at the whole neighborhood, this kid is keeping the worst kids from going out and vandalizing people's houses. But if you zoom back in on that one guy, you're like, look, everywhere you see one of these tumors, you see that guy. He's <laughs> so the problem. He's, he's got to be the guy. Okay. Or, you know, you find the oncogene or all, all of this other stuff. So, you know, and I'm not trying to laugh with, I don't know, the usual ha 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 of I'm smarter than somebody else. It's more like the kind of tittering nervous laughter. <laughs> why are we so impatient and myopic about this? Mm -hmm. why, why are we keep running after the one thing that we can kill or, you know, mutate or destroy or change or chop out or trick, you know, cause that's, that's the next step in cancer therapy is genes that alter the oncovirus to stop it from doing its job. Which if you think about its job being the, you know, the maid or the butler or the whatever, I don't think that's going to go very well over the long term. Cause if we have something that you could say, you get like the new cancer vaccine, which who wouldn't want to be the guy who invented that, right? So give a person the vaccine. It's got the antiviral peptides to take out the oncovirus, which is a maid. So now the tumors aren't growing the way that they usually do. But what's the fourth layer of your immune system? We don't even know what that is yet, but I'm pretty sure we're going to find out if we keep attacking the players of the process of cancer instead of trying to understand its bigger and obviously more relevant uh, place in human health. Because... By itself, it's trying to keep you from dying by taking one small area of your body and saying, all right, coach, I'll dive in the muddy place and I'll clean up the worst of it all and throw some puke on my head for the, for the fun of it, because why not? So as you say all that, it just makes me wonder why, um, why hasn't this been noted? Or uh, is this like a recent discovery? Is this the kind of thing that... Um, uh, because it just makes sense. I mean, the way you describe it, if there's something there that's inherent to uh, keeping all those empties and pizza boxes or whatever it is out of my way, if it's designed to do that and it's a good thing, um, then why don't people focus on it? People being uh, Western medicine or cancer uh, researchers or that sort of thing. Uh, I think, you know, and again, it took me five months of going through oncology textbooks, people who are coming from some pretty left field 
So I guess I've looked at the whole process and in answer to that individual specific question, we're all in a state of shock. Shock about? Oh my God, we deal with cancer. I'm a cancer doctor. I'm a cancer researcher. I'm a cancer patient. And because of our mindset around it, nine out of 10 people that are speaking about it or nine out of 10 books you're going to read on it are all going to agree with, oh my God, you got the worst thing or you're treating someone with the worst thing that's out there. Um, and if you don't do exactly what you're told to do by standard of care, if you're an adult, you'll be considered a non-compliant patient and sent home to die because you're an idiot. Uh, or you'll be sent off to your, I don't know, guy in Thailand who's going to pull out your tumor, well, your chicken guts underneath a cloth to, you know, help you get that placebo effect going, which I think is probably just as valid as anything out there, honestly, so I'm not putting that down. If you have children and you don't follow the standard mode of care, you can go to jail for killing them if they die. So, I mean, we don't have cancer treatment in the sense of one of the options out there. We have, like, almost cancer police. Hmm isn't really about a conspiracy thing but if you look at uh, other clinicians researchers people who aren't bound to uh, play exactly by the playbook of you know the western medicine cancer industry and and how it's packaged a lot of people who are doing that kind of research and publishing their research are actually just well disappearing mm -hmm. so i'm suddenly feeling a little weird about doing this podcast <laughs> it's like oh go cancer industry yay <laughs> <laughs> uh you know but you, you, it's not something that um, Western medicine is willing to really negotiate with. And I think if you were that far out on the particular diving board of the cancer industry saying, you know, we're the only people who can really help people with this. Um, and if you don't do what we tell you to do, you're a bad person, a bad parent, uh, or just a bad patient. So, you know, it's just, just very a, a very heavy handed way of relating to a community of people okay, you've got the worst thing that our modern industry produces as illness, if that's what we're going to call cancer, and we're just going to be belligerent and, and police state-like about it, how it's treated. You know, and I, I just don't even understand why that isn't the biggest red flag. Hmm. Well, I, I think um, most people think that that's actually being helpful. Like you're getting in the way of something uh, helping and it's the only it's the only solution to help that we have. And if you get in the way of, of that, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in in a way that seems more like a police investigation than a doctor's appointment, mm, right? You know, and I, just to say like that that for me that's just an obvious uh, red flag. I mean, that's not medical treatment. That that's forcing people to do something that has the worst statistics ever because we're not allowed to look at anything else because it's making billions of dollars for people. I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, but if you're a Western doctor and you can uh, sign up your patients for a year of chemotherapy, it's between 50000 and $300,000. Sorry, you would actually earn that much money? Uh, well, that's how much somebody's paying, somebody like your insurance company is paying the doctor, the oncology unit, the, you know. But I mean, that's how much... Each cancer patient is worth to the industry of modern medicine. Hmm. I mean, in the number of people that have been busted in the last two years for misdiagnosing patients for cancer and running them through a year's worth of cancer treatments at that money. And then the person's obviously going to have all kinds of physiological signs of being sick because they're being treated for something with poison. <laughs> so we can say, oh, yeah, we got rid of that cancer. So lucky. Hmm.
right? Or, oh, you're dying of chemo, sorry. And then, you know, the very few times it comes out that the clinician is actually, well, yeah, okay, I, honestly, I lied because 50 grand was kind of hard to say no to. And they were old, so whatever. That's disgusting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that's what's happening everywhere. I'm just saying that's actually something that happens. Mm, yeah. You know, obviously it's not happening everywhere because that's just crazy, but it does happen. Wow. Uh, definitely um, rethinking cancer here <laughs> today. Um, so if we're looking at this as being a, I want to see if we can get back on track with the whole idea of this being a sort of natural process in the body. Um, do you have, um, so we've, we've talked about what sort of causes it and what it actually is. Is there things to actually um, recognize about preventing that in the first place or what to actually do if that does happen? Like, is there some sort of protocol or ideas? What else did you want to share? Uh, well, I think there's just one other part of this that, um, for the sake of imagery. So sometimes when I talk about cancer, I often use the imagery of, you know, you get a bunch of people living in some McMansions and every McMansion or house is a cell. And there's this guy, we're going to call him Pete. He lives at the end of this cul-de-sac. And Pete loses his job, gets depressed, gets divorced. And in the analogy of beer and pizza boxes and other stuff, you know, he's in this, well, a few months ago, this high-end place for people with great jobs. And now he's living at this end of this street and he's going through something that looks more like an inner city experience. Hmm. So his neighbors are complaining and he doesn't care. He's probably not flushing his toilet or paying his bills. So on the level of imagery and sort of cellular distress, that's the congestion. There's just not enough of what's needed coming in. I mean, you can only live on pizza and beer until it kills you, right? <laughs> um, you're probably in, in that situation on pharmaceuticals. And in the analogy of, you know, Pete's house at the end of the street, um, when he gets into enough conflict with the houses around him or his neighbors, he starts putting up big metal fences, uh, chains on his windows, locks on his doors. And, you know, that's, I think, an obvious analogy for when you're just in conflict with everybody around you. Uh, from, I don't know, TV shows or some other analogy. But when that's actually happening to a cell in your body, the cell membrane itself can thicken um, to protect the body from what's inside the cell. Probably just as much um, from just protecting the cell from maybe what's around it. But uh, there's a structure called fibrin which comes into your system to thicken membranes. And you can have a cellular membrane that's up to 17 times thicker than it's supposed to be. Now that that's a huge reaction and a natural reaction. You'd have a cell that's getting bigger and bigger, but it's got a huge sick cell wall to keep it from exploding. To keep all that crap in it. Well, I mean, that's one theory. The other theory is, well, now that it's an anaerobic cell, it wants to keep itself away from oxygen. Again, that's running with the theory that cancer is this runaway crazy process. Um, but I think just what's more important is when you sit, take a cell and thicken its membrane or you put that many walls around your house, it's harder to get things in and out, mm -hmm. right? And this is where the true malnutrition and the true sepsis and congestion of a malignant cell or system of cells becomes a thing. So if you were to look at that, you know, either some guy's house at the end of a street, all congested and messy and, and protecting, protecting itself from everything else around it, or just a cell in the body, uh, as an image, what makes the most sense to, I think, anyone about what to do uh, is to get rid of every condition in the body that would make it congested, to make it run on uh, an unusual kind of nutrient base. 
you know. So one other thing that I think is interesting, once the cell gets to that level of dysfunction, it requires, I think, 15 times as much glucose to stay alive and produce enough BTUs to actually just exist in the body as a part of the body. So that's going to take a lot of, uh, I guess, resources, a lot of health from other things. Mm -hmm. And and also that cell is going to be producing massive amounts of lactic acid as a waste, Mm. which again, that oncovirus can nibble away out of it as time. But at a certain point, the whole process is going to have to create more volume. Create more volume. Yeah. So then this is where the, the idea of malignancy spreading the way zombies spread in zombie movies isn't actually accurate. In the sense, if you have one cancerous cell and it's got the really weird, I don't know, scary black finger of cancer and it pokes a cell next to it and then the cell's going, oh, no, I've been cursed by the evil zombie cancer. So I must become cancer too. And I can see how people would naturally look at it that way. But it's also just as likely that the neighboring cells, if we're going to go back to Pete's place at the McMansion cul-de-sac, you know, it's, you know, his way of doing things is going to take over the neighborhood or the neighborhood's going to take over the neighborhood back. So at a certain level of distress in the body, neighboring cells, neighboring houses, end up going through the same process just because now there's garbage all around their house too. So then they have to protect themselves from the garbage, and then they hit the the magic switch of, well, I guess we're supposed to eat all this crap to save the body, so I'll turn myself on. you know. And that happens quite obviously uh, in the same area of the body. But what sometimes happens is it shows up somewhere else. We call that metastasis. And the, I mean, I think it can happen. I have one very sick cell floating around and end up somewhere else, potentially causing the same sickness or distress in the cells around it. But the idea that a cell specific kind of cancer can move uh, as a genetic unit from one part of the body to another and spread cancer, that's not really very um, well proven in the research. It's just what kind of just intuitively makes sense to people, mm-hmm. right? But I, I don't think it's nearly that literal. But I would say if you're a person who's, you know, you know somebody with cancer, you're one of the people alive in a society that gives you a frightening statistic around cancer, the following list of ideas will be good to try and avoid. Because these are things that are known to correlate with what we call cancer. And correlation does not mean causation. So one of the first things that people worry about is their genetics. You know, my mom had breast cancer. I have breasts. Maybe I'll have breast cancer too. Um, So that's a concern, obviously, as we think of genetics the way that we do. But when you pull back and look at the bigger numbers, if you took every woman with uh, the actual gene for the most uh, virulent kind of breast cancer and you tested, say, 10,000 people and you found 10,000 of them that had that gene, 7% of that group of people would get breast cancer. So you're saying that it's not necessarily something that would be passed on from mom to daughter. There's very, very few cancers. I don't have them memorized in my head, but I think there's five that by themselves are genetically known and driven specifically by that very unique genetic pattern, right? To be like the, the, the leader of the fray of all those things that have to happen for cancer to happen. Right. Right. But I'm just saying when you think about, oh my God, it's always 50-50 with your genes, Right. And if both of your parents had it, then it's like worse than that, right? Because mm. we just, it's the intuitive statistical math. I have two parents. One of the parents has cancer, so it's 50-50 for me. And you're saying that's not true? Well, if your mom had breast cancer and you're a man, that's going to change the statistics. And again, if you're 
of the most likely genetically proven type of female to get a certain kind of breast cancer, and only 7% of the people with that gene get the cancer, I don't think it's the gene that's running the show. And we're not doing enough meta-analysis on uh, taking those people with, say, the genetic factors and looking at every aspect of lifestyle that would be the more likely culprit for cancer. Because hmm. that would be some actual research. Um, right. So, uh, to talk a little bit about genetics, epigenetics is a much more uh, potent factor. We've talked about epigenetics a few times on the show, but it's basically all the enzymes around your genes that keep your genes happy. If there's, those enzymes get as sick as you know they're potentially able to get, that would be one of parts of cancer. But again, that's an epigenetic, inflammatory, oxidative stress kind of phenomenon. It's not just genetics. So malnutrition's huge. You can only live so long on beer and pizza and pharmaceuticals, <laughs> uh, which is the place you find the worst uh, statistics for cancer is in, you know, inner city slums where, you know, everyone's on food stamps. So you're saying diet has a huge um, impact on whether or not something uh, becomes cancerous in the body or not. Yeah, I mean, if your cancers have, if your cells, sorry, <laughs> if your cells have everything they need to go through normal apoptosis and clean up shop around themselves to never have to trigger the waste disposal process of cancer, I think that's a, kind of a no-brainer. But to get perfect malnutrition in the 21st century means you're going to have to be one of those people who actually eats vegetables every day and who chooses grass-fed meats over, you know, something in a fast food store, which I think they should change the name from fast food to fast calorie or fast toxic bag of <laughs> <laughs> distraction they, or something. They should be called convenience stores as far as I'm Yeah, saying. yeah, so something anyways. But anyway, to just get that food out of there. So the more we get people on a more nutrient-dense diet, the better things go. The more people try and live off processed foods, the worse things go. Uh, hypoxia, lack of oxygen, that's in a way a no-brainer because the thing that truly trigger, triggers malignancy in any given cell is it going from aerobic to anaerobic. So the more you can do with breathing, exercise, fitness, keep your, your health uh, of your blood you know, optimal, then your cells will never have to be in an environment where they are driven to flip the switch from aerobic to anaerobic, hmm. you know, as, as an example. Uh, obviously, we live in a new environment nowadays. I mean, penguins are full of dioxin, and basically there's crap everywhere that we're dealing with, you know, hundreds of chemicals. So, uh, yeah, when, anytime I meet cancer patients, that's my question, is I, I just keep tracking down their exposure to anything from pesticides to, you know, lead from stained glass to whatever, because that's a huge driver. Would you say that that's also, uh, I mean, I've never been exposed to any real industrial kind of things like lead, uh, but what about uh, just everyday, um, like cosmetics or um, like shampoos and that sort of stuff? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have the details in my head because just spent five months researching all of this stuff and it's kind of rattling around up there but one guy went through the whole sunscreen thing and proved that you're more likely to get sunscreen if you more likely to get skin cancer if you wear sunglasses and sunscreen than if you weren't wow and this guy's he's a clinician he's a researcher he dug into the whole thing but i was just like oh no i never really liked the idea of the stuff but i feel better not using it knowing that you know clinically you're more likely to get cancer by trying to avoid skin cancer with those products. And I'm sure it's not just all sunscreens. I'm sure it's 
Uh, um, yeah, it's obviously the cheap crap weird stuff with the most paraben and wax and chemical smells and fragrances. And the uh, Environmental Working Group, I think if you Google that, what was the list that I looked at? Um, environmental Working Group puts out a couple of different lists, and one of them was called the uh, um, the Dirty Dozen or the Clean 15, and that's in terms of foods you can eat, mm-hmm. uh, foods that have less pesticide loads uh, compared to uh, the ones that have the most. Uh, celery and peaches kind of top the list as bad. Uh, or foods that have, you know, more pesticides in them than food. Yeah, that's why we always get those ones organic. Yeah, uh, but there's also a list on the Environmental Recurring Group site where it's uh, uh, where they list the different uh, sunscreens uh, about which ones are uh, cleaner and greener and what's actually in them. So, um, yeah, just Google sunscreens, Environmental Working Group. I'm sure you'll come up with that list. I can't think of it right oh, now. That sounds like a fun podcast to do on everything. <laughs> <laughs> Look what else we're in trouble with. Yeah. So uh, quickly, a few other things. Um, there's things called halines, uh, chloride, bromide, stuff like that, uh, especially around the recent acceleration in thyroid cancers. Those are a big deal. Um if you have toxic mold in your house, it can produce this new thing we're all talking about, uh, which is a chronic kind of reactive inflammatory disorder that people have that just, they get triggered, all kinds of stuff, but the initial deep sort of intracellular trigger is mold. Hmm. And those things are very related to the way the body gets sick enough to produce inflammation to produce cancer. So it's it's up on the list. Uh, too much sodium in the diet, which is a pretty standard thing for the western diet you know and not enough potassium so if you sat there and ate a bowl of potato chips every day for your vegetable and didn't actually have any vegetables for your vegetables <laughs> the amount of sodium and glucose in potato chips compared to the lack of potassium in your lack of salads that can actually trigger one of the parts that makes uh, cells go from normal to cancer too wow vegetable oils trans fats the new plastic oil that they're deep frying food in that requires the Weird little warning. This may cause anal leakage. Plastic? Yeah. Oils? Yeah, there's fast foods that are using this. No, uh, it's, uh, uh, I forgot the name of it, but basically it's one molecule away from plastic. So instead of deep frying food in like lard the way that we used to, which is actually a better idea, um, because of all the damage from um, deep frying food in vegetable oils, which are super inflammatory, super bad for everything, including your brain, your immune system. Um, now some of these restaurants, instead of going back to lard, because that'd be expensive, they've developed this petroleum product that kind of leaves the texture and flavor of oil on your potato chips. So you can deep fry them in plastic and then eat them. It's just you can't digest the plastic, so you might end up, well, having a little... Accident? Accident. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying we're, we're that far afield with just well, how we even just deal with food. I mean, well, let's just cook it in plastic. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be fine. It, it fits in with a heart disease mindset, so we'll just run with, that's a better idea. I have a saying I often share with people, which is, uh, if you're a grain-fed person living on grain-fed animals, you're twice as likely to get cancer. Take that, gluten. Yeah. Stuff it up a cow, give the cow the antibiotics and, you know, steroids to live through, trying to live off things cows aren't supposed to live off, and then we eat the cow, that's... that's you're asking for it in like nine different directions. So, wow, wow. Um, you keep looking at at your list of uh, things to, to to recite there, um, and there's more. Almost, almost done. Oh wow! 
So breakfast cereals bad, pasteurized dairy bad, chronic stress bad. It's very specific for cancer, chronic, chronic uh, inflammatory stress. Uh, red meat's bad, but not if it's grass-fed healthy cow. It's just bad if it's been a grass-fed or a grain-fed antibiotic, you know, raised, very, very fatty cow that you probably grilled on a barbecue or something. So mm. that, that's a bad combination there. Not enough sleep. Uh, we probably talk about sleep almost every time we sit down, but sleep's really important to not get cancer. Uh, chronic dehydration and something that are called xenoestrins, which we've talked about a bit in the past, which is, you know, hormones from your packaging and stuff like that. So last little bit of lists to look at with this, but be a good place to end this. Uh, so before you get into that, I'm just, I'm just uh, in my mind here, I'm saying it, I, maybe I should say it out loud, that everything you're talking about sounds like um, rethinking your diet and uh, your physicality and um, how it is you actually are in the world to be more healthful um, and you'll avoid turning on the things that turn into cancer. Uh-huh. As opposed to if I avoid eating red meat, I won't get cancer. Like it's, it's, there's, there's, there's a process that we're thinking, that's the rethinking part. Mm-hmm. It's like there's, there's things that we do that turn on a process that result in cancerous activity uh, happening in the body. Mm-hmm. And those, there's also processes, there's things that we can do that shut those processes off or stop them from turning on. Yeah. So that's the next list, which would be the preventing and reversing cancer. Yeah. Okay. Which I'll be as quick as I can. But uh, a plant centered diet. Plant? Centered yep. diet. Where have I heard that before? I, I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe I've said it once Ep- or 200 times. I can <laughs> Episodes 1 through 25, I think. Yeah. Uh, and again, that doesn't mean vegetarian. It just means most of your meals look like, you know, a bunch of plants. Mm-hmm. You know, mostly mostly vegetables. Uh, fasting is a, one of the best things you can do for everything, almost, except for starving. <laughs> right. Uh, exercise, but exercising in the way that gives you more muscle tone. You don't have to become a monster, but without actually tangible muscle tone, your circulation uh, and metabolism are sluggish. I mean, where we should look like healthy, predatory, apex predator mammals running around outside. Um, and if we don't, we're just not running at optimal. Hmm. You know, and if you're working out less than, uh, well, less than twice a week or you skip more than three weeks, you're kind of back to sort of day one. Uh, any kind of meditation, the more applied and focused it is, the better. Um, I mentioned stress, uh, before, uh, I think getting for anyone listening to this, getting a handle on the go-to stress reduction practices you can use that, you know, will work for you. That's way more important than just doing what your mom and sister and friend do. Hmm. Cause it's got to call you in a way and you've got to feel a tangible shift of state. Uh, getting into sleep hygiene, I'm going to do a specific blog about that in a bit, uh, just to list all of the different things. But until you're actually applying all of those things, you're not actually giving yourself the chance to have the best possible sleep. I don't think we all have to go into severe sleep hygiene cult-like behavior for our entire lives. But if you're just thinking about what else can I do to just explore my health opportunities or to just feel a bit better, try three months of just being a bit focused on the depth of your sleep and you might see a lot of things turn around. Yeah, and you're not necessarily talking about taking a shower before you go to bed, are you? Oh, no, I'm talking about a list. Of, it, it, yeah. it would be like a podcast. A podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I, was wait, I was waiting for you to say this. A sleep hygiene podcast. I'd be all for yeah. that. Yeah, we should do it. 
Okay, for proper hydration, obviously. Doing cleanses probably once a year for a couple of months where you are just cleaning off whatever condition you build throughout the year. Uh, and I think the tangible results of that around fitness, fat loss, clarity of mind, lack of pain, uh, whatever else is going to give you a different baseline for what your health could be. Now, I guess I'll leave this to the listener because this is getting a bit long in the tooth, as they say, but uh, go look up the top 10, 20, 50, 100 superfoods that are specifically known to reverse some aspect of cancer and see if you can see how it actually works with cancer instead of against it. Because hmm. that's what we're trying to do here is work with the process, not against it. Uh, there's ceremony, sweat lodges, shamanism, things that require states of being uh, that are a bit altered, you know, where there's music being played and, you know, our, our gears loosen up a little bit about what's allowed, you know, and, and so I'm not saying there's a literal uh, paradigm of shamanism that's better than anything else out there because most shamanism is around what's called the non-literal reality, not the stuff you can write down or take home and show your mom. I think that, I mean, this is pretty obvious for people who spend a lot of time outdoors, but if you don't, uh, you're missing out on some profound opportunities that are uh, epigenetic resets. If it's hanging up by waterfalls for the negative ozone, if it's doing some forest bathing for similar reasons, um, you know, we are primates. We do kind of belong in forests in some ways, so it might be good to check in with, you know, home base once in a while, <laughs> go for a hike. You know, we're spoiled here in the Kootenays because we, we live in a place where there's, you know, hundreds of hiking trails to go on. Just walking out your front door. Just walking out the door. <laughs> turn left, mountain, turn right. Mountain. shop. <laughs> and then mountain. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, making that a big thing. And, I mean, this would be another complete podcast in itself, but it would be uh, on a cellular level um, supporting and reinforcing what's called redox potential, which is this, I mean, that would require the thickest geek out goggles I think either of us would ever have had to wear to get into, so I just wanted to mention it. Uh, but if enough people are wanting to go into it, we can talk about it but that's it's nerd time <laughs> all the way uh and the last thing i want to bring up is human connection love and caring and kindness hmm. yeah that that's, um goes without saying i would think especially around this time of year mm -hmm. um this is the uh the season as we're recording this we're we're getting into the sort of uh, christmas holidays and hanukkah and all that sort of stuff at the end of the year it's um what did i read uh this is the time of year where uh, solstice is the shortest day of the year and it's the darkest day of the year, but it's also the opportunity most, the, the, the day with the most opportunity because immediately following that day, we start to turn towards the sun and turn towards the light and turning towards the light and sun. I don't know. I feel better when I'm outside when there's sunshine. So, um, being in this little small bubble of, um, uh, Christmas and, uh, not really reaching out to people is, um, kind of a bad recipe for this time of year. I think it's really important that, uh, for me personally, to be more out there and giving and loving. I mean, you've talked about that as well, Michael, at this time of year, especially. And uh, I can easily see why that would be a recipe for health, and especially on your list here, talking, yeah. talking well, about I mean, cancer. It's that, or, and I'm going to do this because I'm curious about exploring biohacking as an actual endeavor just for the hell of it, but... Um, Either get a lot of hugging and snuggling with people, or you can go online and buy a nasal spray uh, thing for oxytocin. 
So if you just want to be the like Scrooge bah humbug person, but you still want to actually feel like you're a human being, you can now buy oxytocin in a nasal spray bottle that you can shoot up your nose if you're just having a hard time connecting to people. So if you're listening to this and you're in, in Antarctica and yeah. you're at a remote uh, geological survey location and you're the only one there. The penguins are too toxic to eat. <laughs> you too can get a hug up your nose. <laughs> <laughs> See, we've got to get a sponsor for the show just so we can do stuff like that. And I, I guess I should mention very, very quickly that um cannabinoids uh, cbd thc and other things uh, around that plant uh, the terpenes that are in the root of that plant um super super potent if you are actually dealing with malignant cancer in your body uh that protocol is really really intense it's very very effective compared to what else is available uh but uh, you wouldn't do that under the supervision of a clinician who's actually really, really researched the whole thing because at that level of dose of cannabinoids and that level of restriction on abundant health and resources, uh, you know, it, it could go badly because mm-hmm. you'd be dealing with some pretty stellar kind of heroic doses of THC and stuff. Right. And that's... Uh... But I just thought I'd throw that out there maybe as, you know, for the next thing from up your nose oxycon, <laughs> oxytocin kind of things. Uh, but it, it, I guess I was just speaking to anyone on on the, the other end of the microphone here listening to this. You know, if you've been diagnosed with any kind of cancer, get a hold of someone who knows about those kind of protocols. And if you're in a part of the world where you can access that legally, uh, that would be the most effective thing to do along with everything else that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can't access those medicines legally, move to someone where you can because it's just going to be cooler. Move to Canada. Yeah. Well, we'll see. But anyway, that that's sort of the, the skin and bones of what I would call rethinking cancer. You know, just because it's not by itself the big scary thing, unless it is. Yeah, I'm left with the idea that um, the whole focus of this podcast is for someone to pick up on one small idea and to uh, turn into the direction of being more healthful in their lives. And this recipe for uh, rethinking cancer today uh, kind of talks about, I mean, we're talking about rethinking cancer, but I think this is also rethinking how you live your life anyways. I mean, these are things you should be doing anyways. Mm -hmm. And I say should, because that's the focus of this podcast. Um, And I mean, as you're going through your list there, I'm sort of checking off in my own mind. Oh yeah, right. I still got to do that. Oh yeah, right. I still (laughs) got to do that. Um, There's lots of room to grow and be more healthy, I think, uh, based on the ideas that you've shared today. Um, certainly there's, uh, an opportunity for someone who's been affected by cancer personally, or if they know someone, uh, I would invite them, uh, and I'm talking to you, the listener, I would invite you to, if you found something here that's actually, uh, inspiring in some way, jump down that rabbit hole of health. It is so worth it. I mean, that's what inspired me to be able to sit down and talk with Michael a few years ago when I started talking to him about my own health issues. And, uh, I really see this being a, a powerful tool um, because it's been that way for me. Yeah. And just to be clear, I'm not, um, some new age guru zealot saying cancer is fine. Don't worry about it. It's all good. What I am saying is that if you research it enough, you're going to see that there's room to understand cancer as a tertiary, uh, sort of third level of panic, um, mode for your immune system. And there's way, way more than enough evidence that many, many people can live their entire lives, go through a cancer episode, not be diagnosed, not be treated, die of something else. And the evidence is there that they had still have something that we could 
to identify uh, clinically and chemically as a cancer, right? So it's just, I'm not saying don't worry, never do the drugs. I'm just saying you've got way more time and if there's way, way more options, um, there's way, way better testing now to, to rule out precancerous things um, and recognize you're in one of the very few parts of modern medicine where it's run a bit heavy-handed and a bit like a police state. So move into that with some kind of advocacy. Take a lawyer, take a friend who's knowledgeable. There's a, you know, professional registered nurses that are knowledgeable about a lot of stuff that can go in with you to your scary internist with a big scary list of drugs and say, she's kind of like my lawyer or he's kind of like my lawyer. They're going to decide what to do with all this stuff because I don't want anything. I don't have to be put into my body to be put into my body. And we are at a point, I think, in... in just our whole society where it's, it's, I think it's okay for us to slow down and look at the research, even if it's for a few weeks before listening to anybody with any kind of lab code about everything that they think they know. Mm, yeah. Uh, instead of rethinking cancer that we could have named this, um, thinking cancer prevention. Yeah. Or actually just thinking about cancer instead of reacting to what's on the news or what you're going to, mm. you know, find on, um, uh, wikipedia or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah for sure well a uh, whole lot of great information here today michael right. uh dear listener if you've enjoyed what you've heard today uh could you do us a favor tell a friend uh share this podcast with them that's the one of the best ways that we can actually share this around um if you found something uh that was curious or interesting or something that even pissed you off uh, we want to know about it uh you can reach out to fusion health radio uh, via our facebook page just look for fusion health radio there uh, you can contact Michael directly with questions and ideas and concerns and complaints. Um, he's <laughs> looking a little scared at the word complaints, but um, I know you still love him. <laughs> uh, so yeah, facebook.com uh, slash Fusion Health Radio and share this with a friend. And uh, that's all I've got to say for today. Uh, yeah, please, if you go on to either if it's iTunes or Podbean or Stitcher, just... Um you know, if you can leave a rate and review just so that we know and the, I don't know, the scary computer mind behind how the internet actually works, people will know that what we're doing makes sense and makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So it takes just a minute, a little click, a little comment and awesome. Uh, 26 episodes. Actually, no, the stats are for uh, episodes, episodes that we've actually got up online. So up to episode 23, we've had some 5,000 downloads. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people listening to this. Wow. Yep. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and we're going to keep doing better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. This has been Fusion Health Radio with the Health, Lifestyle, and Mindset Podcast. I'm Anthony Senna. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And we will see you next time. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.